Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents. And if you're on this call, you probably are a wholesale change agent. Now, let me bring in my co-host, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. How you doing, Jonathan? I'm well, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. I'm, uh, I'm actually calling in from Santa Fe, New Mexico today, and we're going to have a Relatively short webcast today, about 30 minutes, because uh, my younger son is being sworn in as a police officer for the Durango, Colorado Police Department, and my wife and I are going to make the four-hour drive from Santa Fe to go watch that uh, ceremony and wish him well. So, uh, sorry for the short uh, conversation today, but it's a good one, don't you think, Jonathan? Absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay. So, today's topic is, uh, does fulfillment by Amazon mean the death of distributors? And we really are covering a much broader topic than that. That's sort of the provocative end game for distributors is basically FBA from our point of view, taking them out of the distribution business. But there are several things that are happening right now that are looking like just distributor substitutions. And Jonathan, you really consolidated the slide for us. Do you want to uh, talk about, you know, before we talk about what the substitutions for distributors are, let's talk about what distributors do. And you actually teach this at the uh, university of Colorado. So you want to give us your sort of thumbnail description of, they call it the marketing functions of distributors, but it's really everything distributors do on behalf of customers, right? Pretty much, yeah. So there, you see at the bottom, um, the source of this is from, there's a, there's a really great book. If you like uh, to create, have good books on your shelf, there's something called Marketing Channels. And Ian's referencing the version from 1996. I think there's one from like 2010. Really, really superb book on channels. One of the things that they look at is, what are the what are the functions? What do the what do channels do? I mean, here we're calling it distributors. They, in the in the book, they're focusing more broadly on what the channel does, because the channel can be composed of multiple channel intermediaries. This is a, an adaptation of the items covered in that book and in that text, um, where they look at what the channel does. So the first thing that the, that the channel does is provide assortment convenience or product selection. And they do that by aggregating products from multiple suppliers. So instead of the supplier going one-to-one -to, -one to the end customer, uh, the distributor is providing a, a huge benefit for both the suppliers as well as the end consumer by aggregating assortment convenience. And, that, and that's a biggie, right? I mean, that was really Granger's value proposition for many years is they, you know, they had the most stuff, the widest variety. But this is... Probably now, why? Well, why more than half of all product searches originate on Amazon because they have the broadest assortment convenience of all, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons, anyway. Absolutely, and and you know, in our in the research that we've done, literally eighty to ninety percent of distributors are positioning around product selection or product assortment. It's it's typically in a prominent place on the homepage. The number of SKUs they have. Um, so this is a this is a big one for distributors. And it's a big benefit that they provide to the end customer. Got it. Market um, information. You, you want to take that one? Yeah. Well, so this is really, you know, providing intelligence about the market back to the supplier, right? So it's, you know, here are the products that are popular. Here are needs for products that are uh, as yet not invented. Um, you know, here are the business terms and warranty and technical sets of information that customers want. So it's everything about, and, and also the size of the market, right? What the potential is and, uh, so this is information that distributors have provided to suppliers, just like retailers have, have provided to suppliers. Um, 
And, uh, you know, so I think this is a valuable role of a distributor. Well, and, and if we put it in today's context, that also is being broken down. Um, there are many more ways for a supplier or manufacturer to get end customer feedback than there were 20 years ago. Sure. Next one is market coverage or product availability. The product availability is also, uh, again, 80, 90, 80 to 90% of distributors are positioning on product availability. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, kind of tough to differentiate on this, and it's really becoming more of a table stake. You, this is, this is what distributors do. You have to have available product. Um, the, the other sort of flip side of that is being more proximate to the customer, market coverage, um, bringing the product closer to the customer. And that is a huge function of, of what distributors do that manufacturers typically are not very good at doing. Yeah, I'll take bulk breaking. This uh, you know, traditionally has referred to the notion that manufacturers like to produce in truckload quantities or rail car quantities. That's how they achieve economies of scale. Uh, and consumers, whether they're business customers or retail consumers, like to buy in small units, you know, say units of one, right? And so the distributor had this bulk breaking function where the distributor would take in full trucks of merchandise from all of its different suppliers and then send out mixed trucks for different customers or different products um, on the, out of the other end of its distribution centers. And the, the problem is, we're going to cover this later, uh, there have been a lot of incentives for, distrib- for manufacturers to get into the distribution business. So a lot of them are doing their own bulk breaking and shipping now. So this was a really important function for distributors for a long time, but now manufacturers are doing it themselves. Yeah. I mean, historically, to, to take an extreme example, you can't buy one Energizer battery from the Energizer manufacturer, right? Um, and that's that's what the channel inter- intermediaries do. They're They're providing different lot sizes, smaller lot sizes, as you get closer to the end customer. Um, but what you're saying, Ian, is that the suppliers and the manufacturers are are participating in bulk breaking in a different in a different way than they have in the past. Yeah, I mean, how many distributors do you talk to who say, "Yeah, you know, we don't we don't carry the whole Bosch line of power tools and accessories. We carry the top 200 SKUs, and then the you know several thousand uh, Bosch fulfills direct for us." Well, that may be a good thing in the short term for a distributor, a, a single distributor, but in the long term it teaches all of your manufacturers how to ship direct and how to break bulk themselves. And of course, now they're doing that on behalf of marketplaces. And so, you know, manufacturers are no longer afraid to do small package fulfillment. And we hear it over and over again from manufacturers we talk to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Next topic is around demand generation and different channel intermediaries, different players in the channel provide different levels of demand generation. I'd be curious, Ian, in your perspective, having been a CMO or VP of marketing of four public distributors, um, to what extent you see the demand generation function varying from very strong to very little? Yeah, I mean, look, it depends on the business model, right? So if you're in, a, in the construction supplies business, you know, you're more, you're not really creating demand. I mean, well, distributors don't really generally create demand. They serve demand for the most part. So you may be, you're trying to capture as much of the demand for your company as you can. So if you're in construction supplies, you may be tracking dodge reports and looking for upcoming projects and trying to make sure you're bidding on the materials that the contractors are going to use, et cetera. Um, so you can be very, very good at managing demand or capturing demand. You're not generating it, I guess, in a literal sense. Uh, if you're an MRO distributor, then it's kind of the same thing. I mean, people are going to use those products one way or the other because they need them. People don't buy recreationally in B2B. And so, 
you know, the demands out there, it's your job to go and capture it. And I think if you have sales reps or if you have great marketing or fantastic website, you may be much better at capturing demand share than other distributors are. But, uh, you know, once you start selling through these marketplaces, they're really the ones doing the demand capturing. Well, and there, there are also, to your point, um, models of distribution where not even capturing the demand is not even part of the, the, the task. There's a company we looked at here in uh, Colorado um, that sells specialty foods products, and they do all of the products that McDonald's uses for 14 states around. They do no demand generation. They do no demand capture. It's trucks moving up and down I-25 across I-70, providing everything that the McDonald's states stores need for 14 states around. So right. that is a pure logistic function uh, without any anything related to demand. Right, right. So we have a uh, <laughs> we have a comment that says some distributors are asking us to do direct fulfillment dropship to their customers. Um, and yeah, so this is a, a manufacturer, obviously, and this is exactly what we're talking about is your, you know, is if you put that distribution function, that break, which, cause if you're, if the manufacturer's fulfilling, they're doing bulk breaking and they're doing, um, order processing, at least part of the order processing and they're doing direct fulfillment. And so those are historically distribution functions and you're asking the customer to do that on your behalf and you're teaching manufacturers how to do it. That's our point. You want to go on to sales contact? Yeah, you bet. Um, so it's related to the demand generation that the, that the channel intermediary in this case is providing the, the point of contact of sales with the next level, um, which could be the end customer or the next level on the channel. So again, by virtue of the coverage, the distributor is in a better position to provide the sales contact than, um, than the suppliers. All right, great. Okay, uh, and advice and technical support. This has been a biggie for distributors for a long time, right, Jonathan? Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm really of the opinion these days that when we look at the, the value add functions, particularly for mid-market distributors, and when I say mid-market, I mean broadly, let's say up to a billion dollars in revenue, the advice technical support is really one of the large, is, one, is really one of the ways that they can differentiate against the much larger players who are going to typically have more logistic prowess and are going to be uh, typically harder pressed to provide that advice technical support. So um, preview in terms of where we're going in this brief discussion, this is, this is a realm where distributors today should be able to continue that function as a way to differentiate against the, the bigger players. Yeah, I totally agree. As you're aware, Amazon's plan is to use artificial intelligence to encroach in this area of value add that distributors really differentiate with today. And so they have a, they have this com, this phrase is actually commonly in their software development uh, job descriptions uh, for positions they're hiring. And it says, our vision is that Alexa will be uh, the all knowing ever present assistant who knows everything about every product ever made attached to a store that sells everything. Not my words, those are Amazon. So, you know, look, it's going to be a long time before AI can answer in-depth questions about technical products, but it's not going to be forever. So is, is, is Alexa in preschool, first grade, third grade? Uh, preschool, I would say. I think we have barely seen the rise of artificial intelligence. So anyway, more on that later. But uh, okay, uh, inventory holding, I'll take this one. 
um, you know, basically distributors invest working capital to, you know, provide inventory availability and, um, you know, that's, there's a certain risk in, involved in there. If you need, if you mess up your working capital management, you can go out of business as a distributor, but you're not doing that if you're having manufacturers ship on your behalf. Um, and if you do fulfillment by Amazon, you're paying for the working capital to be in their warehouse. So you're actually paying their working capital costs. So we'll talk about that in a minute too. Uh, customer support. Uh, related to the prior one on advice and technical support. So, yeah. so this one is is in, in the F, in the FBA the fulfillment by Amazon model. This is this is they take part of this function. There are other parts of this function that will remain at the end of the day uh, for a distributor potentially, uh, but also like the advice and technical support, an area in which distributors can differentiate. How many people? How many distributors say, <clears throat> "Oh, we have the best customer service, the best customer support," right? Um, and they're sincere in that belief. And so um, the ones that do it well, that, that, that will continue to be a, a basis for differentiation. Yeah. Uh, credit and finance. So this has been a distributor thing for a while. You provide credit to customers. Uh, Amazon Business offers 90-day credit uh, or 5% cash back on their credit card. So that's tough to compete with because of the way they generate cash. But that is, that's still a value add, right? Customers, you know, they, they need to smooth out their cash flow cycles just like distributors do. And so having a distributor hold on to, uh, you know, uh, receivable from the distributor's perspective for 30 or 60 days or whatever is uh, very helpful to, you know, particularly to small customers. Um, and then customization of the transaction. This is a biggie, Jonathan, take it away. Yeah. I mean, this is really, this is really the best opportunity that distributors, mid-market distributors have to compete against the larger players is doing various kinds of customization of the transaction. It can it can be as mundane as things like negotiation, but it could be it can go to a much broader set of things like setup, design, kitting, paneling, camp panel building. There's all kinds of things that can happen in the customization of the transaction. And if we think about you know the 800 pound gorilla or Amazon in particular, this is a little bit harder for a lot of these companies to do on, on a routine basis. I think the joke that we sometimes hear is when you call a large distributor, the answer, they answer the phone and they say, what part number, right? Yeah. So this whole, if we, if we sort of tie together the advice and technical support, customer support, customization of the transaction, um, the distributors who are not answering the phone saying what part number, who are saying, who are really asking more probing questions, uh, providing greater support, uh, those three things come together as, as something that remains at the end of the day for distributors to, di to differentiate on. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but just figuring out a long list of services you can offer customers then working with them to, you know, prioritize those and develop them can make a big difference because these marketplaces hate labor. They don't want to add services labor to the value add. And so if you're doing that, you're differentiating. All right. So we really see four categories or four different ways that uh, distributors are facing substitution, right, where other entities are taking on their their traditional distribution value adds so things that are happening that are making distributors less distributy that's not really a word sorry so uh the first one is selling through marketplaces uh, so i'll take this one um so when distributors sell through marketplaces then and particularly with amazon amazon owns the relationship not the distributor uh, they specify that they very they very severely limit the way you can communicate with the customers who buy from you on the marketplace. And they're doing the uh, transaction processing 
the distributors building the product ads, but uh, customers are accessing those through the through the marketplace. And so you just when you sell through a marketplace, you're revealing a tremendous amount of data that Amazon could use to replace those SKUs. And of course, there are a lot of accusations, including a Wall Street Journal uh, investigative column that or article that came out a few weeks ago that Amazon's doing just that. Uh, but you're just becoming less of a distributor because someone else is doing the demand generation for you and doing the order processing for you. But you're still stuck with the picking, packing, and shipping of these simple transactions and exposing your data to a smarter competitor than anyone else you compete with. And you know, so I, I just think it's 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 a way of surrendering some of your value add as a distributor and handing over to someone else. Well, and, and to your point, it, it depends on the, the marketplace model. That particular yeah, model yeah. Is, is one that we are really counseling against because it's, it's clear what's going to happen over time. I think we mentioned this in a prior uh, episode. Uh, we have a client who is measuring how much of their product that they sell year over year. Amazon is also selling uh, direct and competing on. In 2017, that number was 20% of the products that this distributor was selling on Amazon. Amazon was also selling direct. 2018, the number was 37%. So you, you can see where that's going to go over time. Now, Amazon's probably not going to get to 100% because they're going to figure out with their AI, with all the analytics, with all the reporting, they're going to figure out what are the really profitable SKUs uh, to be selling direct. And, and they have that cat's eye or bird's eye view of, of everything. To, to make that intelligent decision. There's a famous, um, what was the Rod Sterling show? Oh. Uh... Twilight Zone. There's a, there's a famous Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, where, right. Where aliens come to, the, come to Earth and they appear to be benign and they, they give over a book to the powers that be. And the powers that be have started to decipher the book. And... Um, the title of the book turns out to be How to Serve Man. Wow. Which sounds very auspicious and benign. And so as part of the outreach, they have people going on spaceships to this other alien planet. And then the protagonist at the end of the show is getting ready to get on the spaceship. And his wife yells out to him, we've, we've deciphered the book entirely. It's a cookbook. So these people are getting on this spaceship to go to this alien land to be eaten. So and how to, how really to serve familiar, man. How to serve man. So right. Amazon, the Amazon marketplace, it's a cookbook, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, I think there's this time horizon differential, right? Because Amazon does things on these 10-year cycles. How do we invade this industry, take market share, take it over? And distributors are just trying to make this month's number, right? Or maybe That's this right. quarter's number. And so in the short term, this month or this quarter, it's absolutely a great thing to do to sell on Amazon, right? Because you you make more money, you have more sales, you generate more net income. And, you know, like you said, I've been an uh, executive in four different publicly held distribution companies. I get the need to make numbers. The problem is that you're revealing all this data that they may use to put you out of business. And, you know, hey, I can't make that accusation. A, I don't want to get sued. Two, I can't say for sure that that's their strategy. But Certainly, there are data points like the one that you mentioned, the one in the Wall Street Journal, that make it look like they're analyzing those transactions and they're going to, you know, there's nothing to stop them from taking over those SKUs in the long run. I, apparently, Jeff Bezos has agreed to testify on the Hill. So, you know, about this whole issue that the Wall Street Journal raised. It'll be interesting to see what he says. I, I think it's a real weakness in their model. 
I really um, like your point though that it's 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 tempting because you're getting cash flow in the short run, but you're yeah. helping them build this engine in the long run. Yeah, right. It's a different time time horizon cycle, and and Amazon's always been very long term focused. And you can do that, by the way, when you're growing 20, 30, 40% per year. Right. Because that supports your stock price rather than net income uh, or cash flow. All right. So manufacturers uh, selling through marketplaces. So, you know, this is, you know, the just like Amazon asks distributors to sell through marketplaces, they're asking manufacturers to sell through marketplaces. And in many cases, do the fulfillment that distributors have taught them how to do only now on behalf of Amazon. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think we're starting to see a, a lot of what, what has been in our dialogue about marketplaces is more about the distributors in the marketplace, but there are really viable models of manufacturers selling through marketplaces. So if we tie it back to the, the title, it's really more like distributor substitute, right? This is a substitute for a distributor as a manufacturer yeah. selling through Well, the and we know of a couple of really sharp tech veterans who are building a manufacturer marketplace. So Absolutely. it is yep. no distributors allowed. And these people have an unbelievable amount of credibility. They sold billions and billions of dollars online. And now they're building a marketplace for manufacturers to sell through. And that's not going to be the last one. So, no. you know, there, the, there are various forces that are taking advantage of the fact that manufacturers have learned how to sell direct and are starting to funnel that demand through marketplaces and away from distributors. And, Sometimes even without marketplaces, which is the next point, Jonathan, we have manufacturers who are selling direct on their own websites. Yeah, we actually started measuring this in our state of EBIS survey each year. Um, and the, the question we ask is, what portion, to, to what extent are you selling, you know, on e-commerce, it's all through to distributors, meaning it's only between you and the distributor. Or is it mostly through distribution, but some direct end users is it kind of an even split? Mostly direct end user, is it all direct end user? The number that stands out when, when looking at this data is that 57% of the respondents, these are manufacturers, are doing some, a little, half wow. uh, direct to end customer. And we're, we'll have a trend on that when we get an update uh, this year when we do that, that survey. But um, this is going beyond the traditional, hey, Procter & Gamble is selling directly to Walmart. There's no channel intermediary, right? There, there's been an understanding for, you know, 150 years that there are certain relationships that are direct. We, we, we asked other questions in the survey that, that really bear this out, that it's the manufacturers are, are selling to new customers, uh, direct. They're selling to new segments. In, in certain cases, segments that even distributors can't reach well, um, like certain end consumer segments. So, yeah, I mean, look, distributors have to add value, or they're not going to be in business. I mean, you know, people want to people want to get their money's worth on their channel partners, and distributors can't hand over all the distribution functions to other intermediaries and expect to still make the same margin. And I think also. The, I taught, you know, when I was in distribution, like, like I was most of my career, generally speaking, or frequently anyway, manufacturers are frustrated with the lack of e-commerce capabilities that distributors have. And, you know, they kind of feel like, hey, you know, if you're not going to do it, we'll do it ourselves. If you're not going to provide robust product data and, you know, online configurators, et cetera, we'll do it ourselves. And so there's been this frustration around a lack of distributor on, uh, uh, e-commerce capabilities that's driven a lot of this. Actually, we've got a, a comment from um, one of our listeners. It says, manufacturer to consumer typically happens or starts 
when the distributor cannot support us digitally. Really wow. right to your point, Ian, especially yeah. in geographies where e-com is low. Yeah, 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 I see that now. I didn't see that when I said that, but I think that person who's with the manufacturer is seeing the same thing. And I, I think, think you, also- I think, re- I think you were reading each other's minds, by the way. Yeah, it could be, could be. I, I'm good at that. I should slap you. Um, and then, uh, so uh, there's a, uh, uh, on our website, there's an article that you and I co-authored. So if you go to distributionstrategy.com, uh, you can find an article called Why Traditional ROI Measures shouldn't have a voice in distributors e-commerce conversations. And look, I mean, I'm as hard-nosed a person when it comes to getting a return on marketing as you'll ever meet. But the bottom line is it's a survival issue now. I mean, if you don't have great e-commerce capabilities, then you're not going to be around 10 years from now. It's just, it's, it, it, you have to have it. It's like, it's kind of like if you're, if you had a competitor who suddenly offered one hour delivery, you might do the ROI on that and say, that's a loser for us. We can't afford to do that. But you would be forced into it. You'd, you'd, you'd have to do it because it's become a new expectation in the marketplace. This is the same thing. Um, you, you don't have any choice. So now let's talk about fulfillment by Amazon, which is sort of the ultimate expression. We only have a few minutes left of distributors getting out of the distribution business. And so in this Ian, model- Ian, Ian, I think it's important to just clarify all of what it encompasses because I think there may, there may be some misconceptions about um, what that entails. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's what I was going to do. So the- so in fulfillment by Amazon, you ship your inventory to an Amazon distribution center. They handle the order. They fulfill the inventory. It's basically on consignment. So you're paying for the working capital, right? And so the only thing you're doing as a distributor, uh, and these are for, you know, not complex transactions, obviously it's stuff you can buy on Amazon without people getting involved. But as a distributor, you're now a pure intermediary. You're not offering customer service. You're not processing the transaction. You're not even really doing the bulk breaking because it's happening in the Amazon warehouse. You're not doing the demand generation. You're just getting a commission. And what is the advantage to Amazon of keeping you in the loop versus sending the next PO for that merchandise to your supplier and taking the 20, 30, 40 points of margin that you're making, depending on the product category? What's the incentive for them to keep you? In FBA, what value are you adding for your own business other than some short-term sales and what's the risk in the long term that Amazon either doesn't displace those SKUs themselves or just go around you to the manufacturer? What's the incentive for them to keep you other than using your working capital? I don't see any. Yeah. I mean, they, they could, they could maintain the facade of goodwill for some time, time period, but right. long-term there is no incentive for them to do anything other than what you just described. Yeah, and uh, Stephen, who's contributed several comments, thank you, Stephen, remarked, uh, Prime has set delivery expectations. And yeah, that's the truth, you know, you just, and I, and I think in many cases, it's hard for distributors to meet those expectations and certainly no better at it than many manufacturers are. So, so if we go back to the the title of the, of the webcast podcast, the title is Fulfillment by Amazon, does that mean the death of distributors? If we go back to the prior slide, Yep. Um, I think that's a really good place to wrap up. So we, we looked at the different functions and it might have, might, might have seemed like distribution 101, but there was a real point there, which is that most of these things that are 101 functions of distributors are now handled in the Amazon marketplace plus fulfillment by Amazon uh, combination. Once you, once you sign up for both of those, and by the way, you can't sign up for fulfillment by Amazon without also being on the marketplace you've basically given up the entire logistic function to Amazon. And the demand generation uh, function. And, 
and most of the order processing function and and some of the credit and finance function because they're collecting the, from the customer right away if it's a credit card and paying you two weeks later, right? And um, you know, you're still doing the inventory holding, but that's a cost. <laughs> you know, you're just helping out Amazon's cash flow there, which is in which they make worse by paying you two weeks after they get paid. And you know, so there's just this whole. I, I mean, I just don't get it. If, if the the if, if you're running a distribution company, you need to take control of being a great distributor and be a fantastic operator. It's always been what's made distributors great is being fantastic operators, and then you need to add a lot of value with services. Uh, and you need a marketplace strategy that doesn't expose you to this kind of environment, but one that's less threatening, you know, with a like Google shopping and eBay business and industrial, they're not first party sellers. They're only third party sellers. They don't have product managers. They don't have warehouses. They don't have delivery fleets. And I know Amazon is the big dog by a hundredfold. And I get it. But in the end, I just don't see how you go to FBA and, and you really remain as a legitimate distributor in the long run. Good. Our next cast, our next webcast is going to be on getting co-op and, and MDF from suppliers. Uh, should be a really rich discussion. Great opportunity for for many distributors to to sharpen, um, to bring more money in to support their marketing efforts. So hey, we do have one quick question, Jonathan. I'm going to read. Um, oh, good. Uh, do you feel if we use wholesale vendors to blind ship some products? We should have them sign a strong vendor buying agreement protecting our data. Yeah, I believe in vendor buying agreements for everyone, Joe, not just for this reason, data security, which is absolutely essential, but also because it uh, puts you in a position to collect MDF and, you know, co-op and, you know, uh, rebates, et cetera, potentially anyway, although I know it's different with wholesale vendors. But uh, yeah, I, I do think you should have these vendor buying agreements and that you, you should ensure your data is secure. So um, that's it for now. We're going to go so I can go uh, watch my son get sworn in. Um, but uh, thanks, everyone. Jonathan, great talking to you as always. Uh, and uh, sure. we'll, uh, we'll see you all next week on Wholesale Change. Thanks for stopping by. Bye.